my name is Hannah, and I'm a student leader here at SALT, and I'll be reading the scripture tonight. Um, so please turn to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Okay. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this day and how you provide for us. I pray for all of us here tonight that you would prepare our hearts for this message and that we, and that <laughs> we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Give us hearts that are willing to submit to your word and recognize that your design brings the greatest fulfillment. Let us grow in trusting you, believing in your sovereignty, your goodness, and your wisdom in all things. Amen. Sweet. Thanks. Uh, so my name is David. Uh, if you haven't met me before, um, I'm one of the guys on staff here at Salt Company. I'm a church planning candidate, which means we're planning a church next year. But before that happens, we have to address this text tonight, Okay. So if you're here for the first time, one of the things we do at Salt Company is we teach through books of the Bible. And basically what that means is that we've kind of decided like, hey, that, you know, we could take this book and we could just kind of pick and choose the different parts that me or, or Ronnie or whoever, you know, really like. And we could just like teach those. But one of the things that preaching through books of the Bible does is it basically lets the Bible set the agenda, right? We don't set the agenda, the Bible does. And so tonight is one of those nights where you regret doing that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but... <laughs> But to be, to be totally honest, like this is a really difficult text, right? Even as, as, as you're kind of hearing it read, there's probably some things that you were like, wait, what? Like say that again? Like what's going on? Um, and you've got some lines in here uh, that I would call like landmines, right? Wives, be subject to your husbands. And then you've got like stop wearing earrings and jewelry and stuff. Uh, call your husband's Lord. That's interesting. Uh, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Eee, okay, that's, we'll talk about that. Uh, and then if you don't, God won't hear your prayers. So it's like... Wow, okay, welcome to Salt Company. Um, no, this text has been confusing people for a really long time. It's been confusing people for a very long time, and it's actually been making people angry for a very long time, uh, and I hope to continue in that tradition tonight. Um, now, here's what I want you to do. Look a few verses earlier from what Kenna read, and go to verse 21. So this is kind of the end of Andrew's text last week. And this, we really, we need to read this because this is going to kind of anchor everything he just said in the verses we just read. 
So he starts off the section, Hannah read, right, likewise, or like maybe your text says like in the same way. And so he's basically saying like, hey, what I just told you, everything I'm saying is in, in a similar way of what I've just talked about. So what did he just talk about? Well, it's in verse 21. It says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And it's by his wounds that you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the thing he's talking about is the cross, right? The cross of Jesus and, and everything he's saying in this section we're going to teach tonight is anchored to the cross. And so if you like outlines, I actually have an outline for you tonight. I normally don't, but it's just three things. The cross is actually meant to change the nature of our relationships, like significantly change the nature of our relationships. And the cross should change our definition of beauty. And the cross should actually change the kinds of things that we bestow honor and glory upon. So before we jump into this text, I want us to just kind of think back to the last couple of weeks and kind of think over this, the whole flow we've been having, right? Because remember a few weeks ago, the thing he talked about was like citizens and their government, right? And he's saying, hey, you citizens, you subject yourself to the, like, the authorities that are over you because this is actually what it looks like to follow Jesus. You subject yourself under these authorities because even if they're evil, largely God put them in place to make the world a better place, right? So then Christians subject yourself to the government. Then it says slaves or like kind of indentured servants or really more just like long-term employees, right? A different idea of slave than we would think of in America. But he's saying slaves need to obey your masters, subject yourselves underneath your masters. And so he's saying, okay, so like broad scale government, then just like in individual relationships, like with employees and bosses, you need to do the same thing. But then it talks about Jesus and us, right? So in the middle, there's Jesus and us. And then it says, okay, now wives, subject yourselves to your husbands. And then husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And so what he's doing is he's kind of moving from like large scale, here's like big picture. You're one person, here's like the whole world around you. And then he kind of zooms in and says, now here's how you, here's how you apply the cross to like just the most day-to-day -day relationship you might have of like one of like a husband and a wife. And I understand that some of you have like checked out from the beginning because you're like, well, I'm not married, so this isn't for me. But what I really think he's saying is he's saying the cross isn't just supposed to be the center of our life. Like it's not just supposed to be the most important piece, but what he's saying is it's, it's actually supposed to be the anchor that like all the rest of your life is tied to. And what this means is that following Jesus isn't about just having like a cross-centered life. Meaning like, this is like the center. The thing I think about the most is the cross and everything else is peripheral to that. That is true. But I think what Peter's saying is saying the cross is actually supposed to shape every area of our life. And so the first thing this text shows us is the cross should change the nature of our relationships. So start reading with me just at the beginning of chapter three. It says this. Likewise, or in the same way, wives be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay, so just textually, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, wives, whatever situation you're in with your husband, whether it's a believing husband or even if it's an unbelieving husband, right? That'd be really hard if you're a believer and your husband's a non-believer to like submit yourself underneath his kind of leadership. And he's saying, actually, what the cross is supposed to do is it's supposed to actually change the way you view that relationship, that your posture 
takes one where you actually come underneath your husband, even if he has a total different way of wanting to lead certain things than you do. And then in verse 7, it talks to husbands, right? It says, likewise, meaning like in the same kind of way, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. Now we're going to get into all of this, but I just want to like big picture think relationships, okay? Because he's not just picking husbands and wives and saying like, I'm going to teach something specifically to wives and specifically to husbands. And if you're not either of those, it doesn't matter, right? There's some like really deep principles in here I want to pull out. From the beginning, one thing we're supposed to notice about marriage is that even though there's kind of these different differences in terms of like role and authority, Peter seems to think that whether you are the wife or the husband, both of these roles are fundamentally a service-oriented role, right? And you actually kind of see that in the way the text is laid out, right? It's like saying, okay, citizens and government and slaves and masters and wives and husbands, oh, and husbands and wives. So he's actually viewing wives and husbands both in the same kind of way. So don't miss the most significant point, even though there's some differences. Marriage from either side of the relationship is fundamentally about posturing yourself as a humble servant of the other. So if you're in the room and you ever have any desire to get married, just hear that. That's what marriage is about. And I think many of us, we'd nod our heads with this. We'd say, yes, that is right. But I want us to actually stop and consider that. Like, think about what that actually means. He's saying, in the way that indentured servants need to subject themselves, submit themselves under their masters, in the same way, wives, subject yourself under your husbands. In the same way, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, honoring this kind of wife-focused way. And so one of the things I think we see here is that the purpose of marriage is not to give you someone who will complete you, or actually to give you what you need, but the purpose of marriage is actually to give you someone in really close relationship that you can serve. That's what marriage is. The purpose of marriage is not to give you someone who will complete you, but actually to give you someone that you can serve. Some other ways people will describe it is like this. They'll say marriage isn't actually about making you happy, it's about making you holy. That is its purpose, that is its goal. Now, it is fun, and it is awesome, and you get to have sex. It does complete and add value. It's just true. It does complete and add value to your life in some significant ways, but listen, at its core, at its core, this relationship is about putting someone into the closest space of your life so that you can learn how to love and serve them in the same way Jesus has loved and served you. That is what it means to get married. That's the point. It's the purpose. It isn't necessarily going to make you happy, but it certainly will begin to do the kinds of things in you that will make you holy. And so why is Peter explaining this? And, I, and I, honestly, like for us in the room who are like, okay, well, I'm not married. Why, why is he explaining this in like the Bible? Why are we teaching it tonight? Well, the reason he's saying this is because this isn't just something that we need to know about marriage. This is actually something that's true in all human relationships. This is the exact opposite posture that almost every one of us takes when we enter into a relationship with someone else, right? (laughs) And that's true in friendships, but also in marriages, right? Because the reason that marriages fail is not because some people are incompatible. The reason is because almost everyone comes into the relationship trying to figure out, how can I get this other person to humble themselves under me and serve me? That's why marriages fail. 
And the problem with this isn't just that both people are kind of fighting to get the other person to kind of posture themselves underneath them as the servant. That's not just the problem that we're both kind of like, you know, wrestling to try to figure out who's going to end up on top of this thing. The deeper problem is that our needs are actually so deep that another human being can't meet them. That's the real problem. Because even if we did manage to get this person to serve us with all of their life, the void in our lives is so cavernous and cosmic that even the best spouse or even the best love that a human could experience could only fill that void in the way like an echo fills a canyon. It's like really loud. And then silence takes up the void again. And the Bible kind of starts the story by telling us why this is true. And so if you are familiar with the story of the Bible, you know it starts off with a marriage. Like, so we're talking about marriage in this text. Oddly enough, the Bible ends with a story about marriage, but it begins with a story about the marriage of two people, Adam and Eve. And, and the story tells us that these two people are created in the image of God. They're children of God. And yes, they had one another, but the primary thing we're supposed to know about Adam and Eve is that they had this more important relationship, this primary relationship with God. They lived in his presence. They were his children. But when sin entered the world, we were separated from God. The Bible tells us we were cast out of the garden, exiled from the presence of the one that we were made for. And so now to be a human being means to have this gaping hole in your life. Created for God, but separated from him. To be a human being now means that you have a gaping hole in your life, this cosmic void that only God can, feel, only God can fill. And it's a void that's so central to who you are that you feel it to the very deepest parts of who you are. And you feel all the time. And even though you have these like moments where you like feel fulfilled, you feel like you might be starting to get whole, this, this thing just kind of echoes around your soul and all of a sudden you feel unfulfilled again. That's what it means to be cast out of the Garden of Eden and to lose the one we were created for. And so as soon as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden, what did they do? Well, they tried to substitute God for the nearest thing. The, the thing that like most reflected his glory, what was it? Well, it was the other person. Right, and this has actually been the story of human relationships since the very beginning. That in the void and the scarcity and the wilderness of our world, kind of outside of Eden, away from the presence of God, we try to get other people to actually fill the thing we're looking for. And we actually do this in a ton of different ways, right? It, we're not just talking about marriage tonight. Like, you do this on social media, right? We do this with getting likes on Instagram. We do this at parties when we're trying to get people to kind of affirm us and tell us we are valuable, and we do this in marriage when we try to find someone who will choose to choose us forever, to, to love us in the kind of way that we think, maybe if this happens, I might finally feel whole. And in all of this, there's this idea that if I can find the right person or get the right, like the right affirmation or maybe even find my soulmate, then maybe, just maybe, the bottomless void that I have experienced all my life might actually be filled, that maybe I can find the person who will make me whole find what I've been looking for. And our world is filled with the aftermath of this pursuit. Because when you try to get human beings to give you what only God can give you, what ends up happening is abuse and pain 
and disappointment, and then separation. Right? I mean, how many of us grew up in divorced homes? So many of us, this is our story. And not even our histories, but like how many of us is this our current story? Like you're in the process with your roommates, like you started off as friends, and slowly but surely you're turning into like awkward acquaintances because you're trying to figure out who the heck is going to clean the toilet and clean the dishes. Like it's a joke, but it's serious. Like this is what happens in human relationships. We come into them and we see, how can I get you to serve me? And the other person does the exact same thing, and it's basically this downward spiral. Okay, I once played uh, King of the Raft with Rob Warren. You guys know King of the Raft? It's like, I mean, we were, as like our staff retreat. It was honestly like the very, one of the very first days I was on staff. And Rob was on this dock, uh, just like on this like a floating dock. And I was like, man, we should play King of the Raft. Like, let's do this thing. Uh, and I think no one else was going up there. Uh, they knew something about Rob I didn't know as my first day on staff. I knew Rob looked big and strong, but I have an a overinflated view of myself. So anyway, I got up there and I was like, let's just see how this goes. Let's, let's just do it. So I get up there, and we're playing King of the Raft. Basically, the whole point, right, you're trying to, like, push the person off, get the place of prestige and privilege, right? And to make a long story short, the very first time I did this, he broke my rib immediately. Like, immediately in one, like, swoop move, he just, like, slammed me off, broke my rib. And like an idiot, I was like, I'm going to try again, <laughs> okay? So I get back up there, cracked rib, I bring some friends, we're trying to get him off. And in the end, like, he ended up, like, falling on me. Like, I got him off the, off the thing, but he, like, broke my nose or, like, kind of cracked it to one side. There's blood. He ended up, like, kneeing me right in the crotch, like, as I was going down, which just, like, adds insult to injury. It was terrible, okay? And he, but he ended up getting a little bit hurt, too, so I felt a little okay about some of it. But <laughs> two lessons, okay? One, never play Gang of the, the Raft with Rob Warren. Like, don't ever do it. The man is... Terrifying and has no mercy at all. Okay, so don't ever play King of the Raft with Rob. Second thing, when two people fight to take the position of privilege, people get hurt. People get hurt. And this is what our world is like. Every one of us, at some fundamental level, because we are living outside of the Garden of Eden, away from this kind of close relationship with God that we used to have, there's this void in our life we're trying to fill. And so when we go into a relationship with people, the most natural or organic thing that we do is we say, how can I get you to satisfy this thing I have? Because I'm so thirsty, I'm so hungry, I'm so longing for something to satisfy me in this deep place that nothing else can seem to, and maybe you can, and so I'm going to try to figure out how can I get this to happen. That's the baseline for all of humanity. And it's why our relationships are so fricked up. It's why our parents don't love each other anymore. But then Jesus comes into the story this downward cycle, and Jesus does the exact opposite of this. This is what he says in, in verse 24 of chapter 2. It says, he himself, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and it's actually by his wounds that we are healed. And so what Jesus does is he comes into this cycle of trying to figure out how can we get everyone else to serve us. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve you with 
my life. And you, you see, the cross should change the nature of human relationships. Because on the cross, what Jesus was doing is he was entering into a relationship with you where he is always serving you with his life. How can you possibly subject yourself to go underneath someone else when you already feel desperately needy, right? Because this is the question of the text, right? For even for you women in the room who are like thinking about being a wife someday, or even for you like husbands someday who are thinking about being a, like, for guys in the room are thinking about being a husband someday. Like you're thinking about this and you're like, how can I actually live my life postured to just give and give and give and give when I already feel so desperately needy myself? How is that possible? Well, the answer is that Jesus on the cross, he fills the void in your life with his. Jesus is exiled from the presence of his father so that you can actually be ushered back into his presence. Jesus' father turns away from him so that once again, the father can look on you and see you, the real you, and actually be proud of you. And Jesus takes our place on the cross so that he can give you his place next to his dad. And it says that when this happens, he becomes like our shepherd, this overseer of our souls. And this is why Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I need nothing. Because if you have Jesus, you don't need anything else. Because the void, the thing that you've been longing for your entire life, that actually becomes met in Jesus Christ. And when you have everything, you can actually begin to serve the people around you and even humble yourself underneath them. Because at every point in time, there's always someone further beneath you serving you with their life. Jesus. And this doesn't mean that we subject ourselves to toxic relationships. It doesn't mean we put ourselves in danger. It doesn't mean that we kind of put ourselves in these abusive relationships. But what it means is that our posture as Christians is that we come underneath the other person. We lift them up. We serve them. The cross is meant to change the nature of our relationships. I just want to just stop for a second. I just want, is, that, is that how you view the people in your life? Like your, your friends, your whatever, the person you're engaged to, whoever it is, do you view that person as someone fundamentally that you go, my job in life is to try to figure out how I can serve this person? Or are you trying to figure out how you can get them to serve you? Because I'm telling you, if you do the thing the world normally does, that relationship will probably not go as deep as it could. It will not last as long as it could. And it will probably end up in pain. But if you do what Jesus is doing for you to that person, they will love you. And you will actually begin to be a healing power in this broken world. The cross is meant to change the nature of our relationships, not just marriage, but all of them. But the second thing is super interesting. The cross should change our definition of beauty. Okay, I want you to see this. Look at, look at me at verse 3. He's, he's talking to, to, to wives in this scenario. So like primarily, like the, the women in the room, listen to this. It says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then he continues on. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, okay, there's a lot going on here, okay? This is honestly really confusing. Um, but I actually think there's, someone, there's something for everyone here. He says this, don't let your adorning be external. Okay, so what are you talking about, adorning? Well, what is an adorning? An adornment is something that you put on something to make it more beautiful. It's the things that make us beautiful. And what he's saying is this, he's saying don't let the things that define your beauty, and he's talking primarily to women. He's saying don't let the things that define your beauty be the things that the world says are beautiful. And in this culture, right, it's like braids, jewelry, clothing. But he's saying it's the external things, right? It's body image. It's how good you look in a swimsuit, right? Things that can draw a crowd or things that can draw the eyes of the world. He's saying don't let that definition of beauty define beauty for you. Instead, let the things that define beauty in your life be the hidden things. He says the hidden person of the heart, like, like the deep you. And he says the gentle, quiet spirit. And this, this isn't like some nice saying, okay? Like, I understand that this kind of sounds cheesy, right? It's, it's like, it's not what's on the outside that matters, what's on the inside, right? It's like, you've seen this commercial, or like you've driven driving by and seen it on a billboard, and you're like, okay, like, thanks, right? It's, it's not just supposed to be this, like, cheesy thing. Why is he saying this? He's saying, don't let this beauty define you. Here's a different kind of beauty that I'm saying Christians should take this view of beauty. Why does he say that? Well, he says why. It's because these things, in God's eyes, are very precious. What the cross does is as you enter into a new relationship with God, for the very first time in your life, it gives you new eyes to be beautiful in. It gives you new eyes to be beautiful in. And I want to just stop for a minute, and I want to let that sink in. Like, I want you to actually think about that. That's what the cross does. If you are a woman in this room, one of the tragedies of your life is that this world will do whatever it can to get you to spend your life on this treadmill of perfection. And beauty is one of the primary categories it will try to get you on this treadmill with. Becoming whatever version of beauty that is currently trending on Instagram. To, to become whatever currently will win the eyes of the world or the eyes of all the boys. But the cross is saying something really powerful. The cross is saying that there was actually one who saw you without makeup, without any of the external things that you might add to yourself, that there was one who saw the real you, the hidden you. And this one who saw you said, I want that one. And I am willing to pay at the cost of my own life. When you follow Jesus, this becomes your story. Listen, you can live this life for the eyes of the world. You can do that. And, and that kind of standard of beauty that the world pushes at you and says, hey, this is what beauty is. Let this define your life. 
you can do that, but it will wear you down. It will crush you, and you will never measure up. And even if you do, when you get into your 30s, you will start to have this existential crisis because people who are in their 30s never fit the view of beauty the world holds up, let alone in their 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s. You can do that. It will destroy your life. But there is another option because you can lift up your eyes and you can see that the one who made you the one who sees all of you, the one who sees you to the very depth of who you are, even the things that are hidden within you, that he has seen you and he has declared that you are beautiful and you are valuable to him. And so if you do that, and then the goal of our lives is not to try to become beautiful and loud and attractive in the eyes of the world, but we actually begin to be able to live a very simple, quiet life where we try to live the kind of life that God sees as beautiful. And some of you in the room, like, I just, I want you to hear that. Like, I've talked with so many of my friends who, like, that is their story. They're on this, like, treadmill of perfection, and they are running as fast and as hard as they possibly can, and they are absolutely exhausted, but they feel like if they don't keep up with this, they will have no value, and they will not be beautiful. And I am telling you, you can be beautiful in the eyes of God. And I'm telling you that at the end of your life, at the end of your story, it is his eyes are the only one that actually matter. And so this is what he says. And, and honestly, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. This is where the text gets confusing. Okay, so look what he says next. For this, meaning this changing of adornment, right? Not this kind of outward beauty, but the kind of, this inward beauty. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay? What is Peter doing here? Because it, it's weird, right? It seems like he's saying, not external beauty, inward beauty. God sees you. And what I mean by that is submit to your husband. And you're like, what? Like you had me earlier and now I'm confused again. What's going on? There's this moment um, in the gospels where Jesus is with his disciples. Okay. He's with his disciples and he's hanging out at the temple. And I don't know if you remember the story, but there's basically all these like displays of glory. Like people are giving their money and it's like kind of this beautiful, glorious thing. And so people like would actually have, I don't know if you, you know this, but back in the day, people were trying to show off how holy they are they would literally have a horn that they would walk up and they would blow the horn like, and everyone would turn and then they would like take money out of their pocket and put it in. Like that's amazing that that was a real thing, okay? But like people are doing that and like they're giving extravagant amounts of money. And so they're like, people are looking at this and saying like in the eyes of the world, this is awesome, this is glorious, it's loud. And the whole room looks at it and says, this is powerful. And then Jesus is with his disciples and there's this old lady who only has two coins. And she quietly walks over and just like puts them in and keeps walking. And Jesus is like, ho, 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 hold on. Everyone look at this. Everyone, stop what you're doing. Look at this woman. She just gave everything she had. And it's two tiny coins. And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to say, hey, there's this like 
thing in the world that's saying like, this is valuable, this is beautiful, this is glorious. And Jesus is saying, I want to try to show you there's this like hidden, quiet beauty that's actually not beautiful in the eyes of the world because no one's blowing a horn for that lady. Two coins, right? No one's blowing a horn for that lady. But Jesus, God himself says, this is the most impressive thing I've seen the whole day. What Peter's doing is he's trying to say, that is actually what it looks like to be a human being in a normal relationship. If you are a wife and you have a husband, he's saying one of the ways you will actually be most beautiful in the eyes of your father is not to put on gold and earrings and kind of get all dressed up and then walk out into public as this beautiful display for the world. But actually one of the ways you are going to be truly beautiful and precious in the eyes of your dad is to do the quiet, unseen, mundane thing of just honoring and serving your husband. The world will never applaud you for that. No one's going to show up with a camera and take pictures of you doing that. You post that on Instagram, no one's even going to follow you, let alone like it. But God is saying, this quiet, humble service of another person is actually truly beautiful in my eyes. And so he's not just calling you to do that, but he's actually giving you the freedom to do that and to get off this other treadmill. And the reason that this is really important is because what Peter's talking about is submission, right? He's actually saying, hey, in the marriage relationship, yes, both people posture themselves as humble servants. But at the end of the day, men are supposed to lead through humble service, and women are supposed to submit through humble service. And there's this tension that we have where, like, we in our society go, this is not good, this is wrong, and actually to take this posture of submission is actually a shameful, lowly, pathetic thing. And if you do this as a woman, you're a joke. And what you need to do is you need to try to fight for this other position. Like, that's what culture would tell us in Madison today. Which is why this text is so hard to teach in a city like Madison and in a year like 2021. But I want to change our perspective on submission because I think this text is trying to change our perspective on submission. Because the cross changes the things that we say are beautiful and valuable. And when we as a society, when we come together and we say that submission and obedience and coming underneath an authority figure is a lowly, pathetic, and shameful thing to do, then what we are actually doing is we are saying that what Jesus was doing on the cross is a lowly, pathetic, and shameful thing to do. Because this is exactly the role that Jesus was taking on when he hung himself up on the cross. He was submitting himself underneath the will of his Father. And the world looks at that and says, that is weakness, that is shameful, that is worthless, that is a sad role, no value, and actually there's oppression in that, it's wrong, it's evil. And God says, no. No. It's not just not shameful, but it's actually what Jesus did that actually elevated him to the throne. 
This is what Jesus did that actually elevated him to the throne. This is what Jesus was doing. This humble submission underneath the authority of his father was actually the very thing that caused God to bestow on Jesus the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The reason that's true is because Jesus humbled himself underneath the authority of his dad, even though he prayed to his dad for a different outcome, and his dad said no. And God looks at that and says, this is the most beautiful thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And it's actually so glorious that I'm going to put a crown on you that is so defining and so beautiful that literally every single knee in the universe will bow before the name of the one who has done this great deed. If your view of the roles of men and women in the Bible, if you view submission as so negative that you exclude the role of the Son of God as being valuable, you need to change your perspective. It's not less valuable just because the world says it is. Because if you think that submission and service is a lowly, shameful thing, you only think that because the world tells you that. Because your Father in Heaven does not say that. It's literally the hinge on which the story of the universe turns. <laughs> like, it's not just the, the hinge that the whole story of the universe turns, but it's like actually like what the whole church is going to do. We're going to posture ourselves in that position for eternity. This place of submitting to Jesus Christ. Like, I'm going to take this female, like, posture underneath Jesus Christ as, like, my husband, right? Like, that's what the Bible says. And so, like, we put ourselves underneath authority as the church, and you know what happens when the whole church does that? God himself says, this is amazing, and bestows the church with glory and honor. Submission is not a lesser role. It's not a lesser role. And so, for the women in the room— if you ever get married, one of the ways that you will humbly serve your husband will be by submitting under his leadership, pushing him forward instead of holding him down. And, and when you do this, it seems so small and mundane, and it seems so hidden, but when you do this, you're actually exhibiting a beauty that is not just precious in God's eyes, but you're doing the very thing that Jesus did that makes Jesus so beautiful in our eyes. It's awesome. It's beautiful. And so the last thing is this. The cross should change the kinds of things that we bestow honor upon. Read, read this last part with me, this part about husbands. It says this. Likewise, in the same way, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is probably the part of the text that people get the most uncomfortable with, right? That term weaker vessels, it's like, I mean, it's hard. It's a landmine. Don't step on it. It's tough. But you know what this looks like for me? Because this is what he's saying. He's saying, husbands, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live with your wife in an understanding way. And, and what, he, what he literally is saying here is he's saying according to knowledge. There's this thing that men can tend to do, which is they can basically lead people 
in a very detached, very unintimate way, basically saying, I'm running in this direction and you need to keep up with me. This is where we're headed. And what Jesus is saying, what God is saying to men who have this kind of like leadership role, he's saying, that is not how you're going to lead. No, actually, you're going to lead in an understanding way, according to knowledge, meaning you actually need to so know your wife and so know this beautiful person I've put in your life that you actually know her hopes, you know her fears, you know her insecurities, you know her, the depth of her, and actually you live with her according to that deep knowledge. And then, he says, not only that, but then you actually show her honor as the weaker vessel. Now, this word weaker vessel is really interesting because I think we hear this and we think, okay, weaker means less valuable. Once again, that is the world, not Jesus talking. And he's talking about vessels, right? Vessels that were strong, they're like what I use for Silas when he's eating, okay? Like, they're made out of plastic, they don't break, he throws them, okay, across the room. And when he does, they don't shatter, right, Connor? Right, okay, he just watched Silas all day today, him and Sarah. But anyway... Here's the thing, that is a common, strong vessel. It's common, and it's actually really strong. You can huck that thing across the room, and it won't break. It's dependable, it's sturdy. Not a weak vessel. Also, we don't care about it, okay? Like, if that thing gets lost, we're going to buy another one on Amazon, not important. The idea he's talking about here is like something like fine china, okay? It's actually valuable, and along with being valuable, it's fragile. And actually, these two things go together. And I know that as you hear that, you're like, ah, no, women aren't fragile. But listen, in some ways you are. It's true. My wife, in certain ways, is more fragile than I am. And, and here's the tension. As you live in this world, basically what the world is going to tell you is this. Hey, if you're born as a woman, if you have feminine qualities— those are kind of like negative qualities in the world's eyes. And so what you need to do is you need to actually become strong. You need to become valuable in the world's eyes. And so what you need to do is you actually need to leave femininity and pursue some form of maleness. And because this is what's valuable in the world's eyes, that's what you need to do. And one of the things that this text is doing is it's saying men, specifically husbands, no, actually, one of the things that you need to do is actually you see the differences in the women in your life, and instead of viewing those things negatively or viewing weaknesses even as something that's less valuable, he's saying actually there's something in femininity itself. That yes, it's different. But he's saying there's something in femininity itself that de facto should cause you to honor it, not abuse it, not take advantage of it, or not even diminish the differences and pretend like they're not there. But actually, the differences that exist, something's supposed to happen where people see this weaker vessel, see this feminine person, and goes, oh my gosh, there is something actually worthy of honor and praise here. And this is one of the biggest, honestly, the biggest problems that we have in the world today is because, you know, feminism, I'm gonna, I don't have this in the notes, but when feminism started, it started from like a super good place. And basically the goal was this. It was like, okay, maleness and femaleness is like really broken. It's super messed up. And that has been true throughout like almost the entire history of the world, right? We can affirm that, agree with that, say amen. It's been messed up. 
And actually, men, historically, having some kind of strength and power in the world, have historically oppressed women. And that is true. We can agree with that and say, yes, that's true. That's messed up. And so feminism originally was just saying, like, there is oppression happening here. There's, there's not similar freedoms. And actually, in society, the biggest problem is that society says maleness and strength and power has value, and feminine qualities don't have value. So actually, this unequal thing comes because of not just lack of opportunity, but actually lack of value. And so one of the core tenets of feminism, first wave feminism originally, was to say, we want to create a society that actually values femaleness. Things that are uniquely female that men can't do. Give birth. Valuable. Has value. Incredibly worthy of honor. But now we live in this world where we haven't figured out how to do that. And so now we say, well, actually what we need to do is we need to, to tear down the differences entirely. Maleness and femaleness not working. So there's no fundamental difference between men and women. And one of the things that this text is doing is it's saying, hey, actually, you in the room who's a female, you actually don't have to change to be valuable. You actually just are valuable today. Exactly as you are. Even if you don't climb the corporate ladder. Even if you don't become the beautiful person that gets all the likes on Instagram. Even if you don't become the kind of person the world says, this is what's truly valuable and worthy of honor. What this text is saying is no, exactly as you are, exactly as God made you, you are worthy of honor. Why? Because your Father in heaven made you an heir to the grace of life. God views you as valuable, exactly as you are. I know that this message has been <laughs> mostly directed towards women, and the text just is mostly directed towards women. But here's where we're going to land. The cross changes the way we should think about relationships. It changes the way we should think about beauty, and it changes the things we honor. And I think that there's a lot of things in the world that our world would tell us, hey, you need to, you need to actually change the way you live. You need to change the kind of things you pursue you need to actually become a certain kind of person. And I think what this text is saying is whether you are a, a dude or whether you are a girl, no matter who you are in this room, it is trying to say actually what the cross says is that you in and of yourself have someone who loves you exactly as you are and who's serving you with your life. And what that means is you don't need to try to become beautiful to the world. You don't need to try to become worthy of honor, but actually you are worthy of honor because Jesus Christ has said so. Now when we start to get that in our bloodstream, a lot of things will change. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to texts like this, God, thanks that we God, thanks that we have a whole Bible. God, that it's just like this text is like mixed up into this massive story of the way you love us and care for us. And God, thanks for my wife, Steffi. God, even as I read this, I just think there's so many different things in her that I have like gotten to experience, like the unique beauty of someone who actually really is striving to become beautiful in your eyes more than the eyes of the world. And God, thanks that I get the unique grace of knowing her as a wife. God, I pray for us in this room. God, as we even just talk about things that are like sticky and things that are hard and 
God, even like words in here that no doubt cause even just like pain or discomfort or confusion as we read them. God, I just pray that we would become the kind of community where we can actually live as your children in the right kinds of ways. God, that we would stop being told that we're only valuable when we live a certain way, but we would let you define our value for us. God, I pray this would be a safe place where people can come in as they are and know that they're loved by you as they are. In your name.